um, did want to mention the membership classes. If you're interested in learning more about Calvary Bible Church, um, and if you're interested in joining, you need to attend the membership classes. This will be during the ABF hour. We'll meet um, after the morning service. We'll meet in the kitchen. It is over here in the office wing, and uh, for the month of February, or I'm sorry, of March. And so, uh, for four weeks in March, we will meet for the membership classes. There is a clipboard that has a sign-up sheet on it in the main foyer. If you'd like to sign up and be a part of that, please do uh, attend that. Even if you're not going to join, you can attend and learn more about it. But I even had one today ask about that. We've been considering this. And if you want to join in six months and we're not offering the class, you'll have to wait again. So maybe you'll want to get the class um, taken care of. And uh, we do appreciate those. It's always a good time as we just kind of go over some of the basics of Calvary and let people know what's expected as they become members. Also wanted to announce uh, a trip. Calvary's gonna be going to Israel in October, and so you are invited to join a group for this trip. We are joining with a group from Hunter's Creek, and together we'll be making a trip to Israel in October. So there's details, there's a brochure in the main foyer, as well as a poster that's on the bulletin board, and it's a ways away, but you need to start thinking about that and planning now for that trip. I was able to go last year, and it changed my life. It's an amazing opportunity to go and walk where Jesus walked, a very worshipful time. And it's not a tour guide type of a time necessarily. That's what I anticipated. It was very worshipful. Uh, our guide was a, he was a Jew and he was a born-again Christian and um, had a wonderful, wonderful look at uh, Jerusalem and Israel, past and the future. And so that was very encouraging for us, except for when he wanted to play trivia with Bible trivia with all these pastors because he beat us every time. He knew what he was talking about. Having said that, when I scheduled this trip last year, I said we have to have um, Erez as our guide. And uh, it's incredible. And so I'd encourage you to pray about that trip and there's information in the, in the brochure in the foyer. So please do pray about that. Speaking of praying, let me go ahead and stop at this time and ask for God's wisdom. Father, we come to you right now. We've done our best to push aside the distractions, to sing songs that would lead us to you, thinking about your son, how beautiful was the last words that we just sang of how special we are to you, our Father, what you've done for us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We praise you for the cross. And we thank you that you not only thought about us in something that happened 2,000 years ago, with a payment for sins on the cross. And you not only think about us in the future when we look towards heaven, but you think about us today. I know there are a lot of burdens that are carried in this place. Folks that are hearing this message today. Things that maybe they would weep about. Things that uh, maybe they can share with someone. Some things that they keep inside. And God, it's such a blessing to know that we do not have to go through these by ourselves. I'd ask now that as we open your word and, and focus on encouragement that you very clearly would be involved here. We thank you for the blessing of being your children and for studying your word together at this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to be people that speak plainly and clearly and truthfully. If this is true, then why is that Bible command, let your yea be yea or your nay be nay, so hard for some people to grab a hold of? 
What I'm getting at is this. I think a lot of people don't like to be buttoned down. They don't like to say no or to say yes. They like to have that flexibility. I can't help but think that perhaps it's the ambiguity that we like of not having to follow through because if I say never or if I say always, someone's going to hold me to that. And if you don't want to be called a liar, if you don't want to be called flaky or inconsistent, you might cause yourself to stay away from those terms. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. You know there are some... Bible verses that sound a little bit better in the King James, like that one right there, right? Instead of let your yes be yes and your no be no. When we think of that day that we live in, and many people don't want to be necessarily pushed down and tied to something, I think we don't like that accountability. I want to mention to us, there is someone who does not mind the accountability and the comfort that that comes that comes with that. I think that Charles Dickens was the one who coined the phrase, you should never say never. And a lot of people have adopted this, never, ever, ever say never. And we could probably talk about this with an appropriate Bible lesson, but I don't want to talk about you and I and how maybe we should never say never or how we can say never sometimes or how we should never say always or sometimes we can say always. I don't want to focus on you today, but instead I want to focus on someone who does not apologize for saying never. Because I can tell you as brothers and sisters in Christ that we can talk about one who says without apology the word never. Because here's what my God said, and here's what you're going to need to hold on to at some point in your life. This promise that God has given his children, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I think that's got to be for me in the top 15 promises that I will quote from God. It's common that I'll find myself next to a hospital bed praying with someone or talking to someone who's going through something and they have no idea what the answer is. And just to let you know, I typically don't know what the answer is either. But I do know that we share a God who has said never. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Another way of God saying, I will never leave you, that's kind of the negative side of it. I will never leave you. The positive side of that is I will always what? Be with you. If you're taking notes, write, write that one down. I will always be with you. This has not only been God's character for eternity past, forever, but it's been God's character for millennia as he has interacted with his children. As God has had a plan, his perfect plan, and as he's had his resources to carry out his plan, he has reminded key followers of his, and let me just say in addition to that, he has reminded every other follower of his of this truth that he will always be with you. When we think of Joshua and the task that he had before him, I think that it put an incredible amount of confidence in him when God said in Joshua 1.9, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee wherever you go. That's the confidence that Joshua had. When we look to Moses, and one of the most popular accounts that we look at with Moses is the burning bush. And at that time, when Moses had been away 
from where he grew up, away from the responsibilities, out being trained, and God says, you're about to go and you're gonna get into some serious work. And God said at that moment with the burning bush, I will be with you. When God told Gideon, you see your people around you, they're all in slavery right now. I'm gonna pull them out of slavery. And God said, you're going to do this work, thou mighty man of valor. And God said, I will be with you. I like Gideon. I know some good Christian men that don't like Gideon. I had an instructor in college that called him a, a, a wimp, kind of a sissy, a coward. He was hiding and he kept doubting God. And I might lean towards that except for the fact that God calls him a mighty man of valor. So if I've got to pick who I'm going to agree with, I've got to go with God. When we think of Isaiah, and Isaiah was giving the task of preaching. Beyond that, Isaiah was given the task of preaching and people not responding to it. That's tough. Maybe you don't know what that's like. I know what that's like. To preach and to not get the response you want. To preach against the idols that were prevalent in his day. And God said to Isaiah, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. This is a major theme throughout the scriptures. And if you have not already adopted this as a part of your journey with Christ, if you've not already had to tag a hold of this idea, let me encourage you, it's going to come. There's going to be a time where you're going to just be, say under your breath or deep within your heart, or maybe you can't even get the words out. You're going to be grateful that God will not leave you nor forsake you. All of that to bring us to our study in Acts chapter 18. If you're not already there, please turn to Acts 18. And really we're calling this message part two because it's just a continuation of the encouragements that God would give. Paul, he's traveling through on the second missionary journey. And last week we mentioned there was something different about this. Um, he was alone at this point. When he came to Athens, he was actually alone. And he comes to Athens, this place that was an incredible area of thought where the great thinkers of the day would come. Paul gives that defense of the gospel on Mars Hill and individuals will come to Christ. Paul is there by himself and he leaves there and he goes to the town of Corinth and that's where we're going to be at today. And as he arrives in Corinth, he's very discouraged I know that a little bit from our text here in Acts 18, but even more so from what he wrote to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he said, when I came to you, maybe you remember from last week, he said, I came to you in weakness and in trembling, which is a different picture for the Apostle Paul. We don't think of him as a trembling kind of guy. And yet that's what he was like. And God encourages him in a few different ways. We looked last week at two of those ways how God encouraged Paul with friends. When he got there to Corinth, he met Aquila and Priscilla, and right away he worked with them, worked for them, lived with them, and they were friends that would encourage him. It's important for us to understand that you're not alone. It's important for us to understand that God's plan for today is not for you to be by yourself. And I very firmly believe this is why he's given us a Christian fellowship. That's also why you shouldn't just be very fringely involved with a Christian fellowship. You need to have someone that can encourage you when these dark times come. Aquila and, Aquila and Priscilla encouraged Paul. And then comes Silas and Timothy. 
They come along and they join him and they free him up. And these friends bring along a couple different things that were a blessing to Paul. They brought along, first of all, good news about the church in Thessalonica. They couldn't text message each other. They couldn't check on the internet and see how that church was doing. And so these good friends come and they say the church at Thessalonica is thriving. And this is what Paul poured his life into. So this was an incredible encouragement for him. So they said the church in Thessalonica is doing great. And the church at Philippi, do you remember what they did for him at this time? They sent along an offering. They sent along some money. Now Paul was working with Aquila and Priscilla to pay his way. He was preaching only on the Sabbath and working the other six days of the week. And now when this gift comes from Philippi, he's able to stop and he's freed up to do the work of the ministry full time. A second encouragement that he sees is he sees fruit. And I think that's huge. I think this is a very big one for us today. When God allows you to see that your labor is not in vain, your labor is making a difference, something that counts for eternity, that's a huge encouragement. And he sees fruit there at Corinth where we read last week, many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. So these are the same kind of encouragements that God, use, that God uses today. And then we're going to go over a third one today. This is the third encouragement that we're going to see in Acts 18. We find the encouragement of God's promises. The encouragement of the promises of God. And there are three specific promises that we're going to go over. Now, I think that as God works in our lives, he allows us to mature. Aren't you, aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that you're not expected to be a veteran believer when you're a new believer? And aren't you also sad for these believers that have been, been saved long enough to be veteran believers and they still act like baby believers? God's very patient with us. God knows us so very, very well. And God knew Paul and God knew what Paul was going through. And there might be a lot of questions that come up from our study today because we don't know God's mind. We don't know why he allowed something to happen here and he didn't allow it to happen over here. Having said that, we trust that God is good. We trust that he's in control. And we see very specifically that God had his hand on the Apostle Paul. And I think here at what we're coming up to today, God understood that Paul might have been at a breaking point. And so God appears to the Apostle Paul. He appears to him a number of times throughout the book of Acts. We studied a few weeks back, Acts 16, where Paul had an encounter with the Lord and Paul had a strong desire to go to Asia and God said, stop, you're not going there. Paul had a desire to go to Bithynia and God said, you're not going there. And I love the theme that when God tells us what not to do, it's very common that he tells us what to do. And so in Acts 16:9, God gives Paul a vision uh, in, in the night of a man from Macedonia who calls to him for help. Another time God appears to Paul is here in Acts chapter 18. We'll be there in just a moment. And then if I can fast forward a little bit, Acts 22, God appears to Paul. He's praying and Paul falls into a trance and God tells him specifically to leave Jerusalem. In the next chapter, in chapter 23, verse 11, after being beaten by the soldiers, God appears in the night saying, take courage. And then in chapter 27, during a storm at sea, God tells Paul, no one is going to die. That's a beautiful picture. If you're reading ahead in our study of the book of Acts, go and read about that, that storm that's going on and how God tells Paul, no one will die and all the things that are going on. 
And as I have studied through this, I, I didn't go through and count them. Maybe you will do this job and let me know how many it is. How many times it is that when we find the words, I am with you, it's tied to the words, fear not, or be of good courage. They, they go together, don't they? I'm with you, so don't be afraid. Fear not comes up so often in the scriptures. At least five times in the book of Acts, we find Paul gets to a point where I think God understood I have to go and give him a vision or appear to him. And in chapter 18 and verse number nine, Paul is at a, uh, it's, it's, a it's a crucial point. I, I'm not exaggerating here for effect. I wanna let you know in verse number nine of Acts 18 that here's what's happening with the apostle Paul. It looks to me like he's about to stop preaching. Do you understand how jugular this is? You and I have the benefit of having the scriptures with us today and the wonderful books that he wrote. And so when I say the words to you that on his second missionary journey, it looks very much like Paul was about to stop preaching. He's about, about to stop, and I think that will come through clearly when we read this. So God sees Paul. And imagine, can you just, I don't want to go through you know, something that's hypothetical too much, but imagine if he did stop preaching. Talk about a win for the devil, right? I mean, if he could have got Paul, and let me jump into my application a little bit, if he could have got Paul to stop preaching at that point, and I think the devil doesn't get us off track by getting us to leave something like preaching and going to something like a cult. That's not what God, or I should say, that's not what the devil distracts people with. He distracts people from something that God has them to do with something that is good. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying, you know what, I, I, really think that, I really think that I would be an outstanding deacon in this church here in Corinth. I should stay here and just, I mean, who's going to be a better deacon than me? And who would have, right? We need good deacons. We need good elders. And as Paul is at a point about to break, God brings him some promises. I think three different promises that we see. He tells him, first of all, in verse number nine, what not to do. And then he tells him what he's going to do. Look at verse number nine of Acts 18 with me. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Do you see it there? Do not be silent. Go on speaking. Three specific promises that Paul is given here of why he should not be afraid. And the first one is he's told not to be afraid because of God's power. God said, I am with you. And the first part of verse number 10 talks about this power, for I am with you. And when we think about this, and we think about this promise of God's power upon this servant, and how many times he would move forward with boldness, knowing the power of his God. And you might say to yourself, man, I wish I had a promise like that. And if you're, if you're familiar with how the book, book of Acts ends, in Acts 28, God gives this promise when Jesus Christ is leaving and he tells his followers as they're about to begin this job of establishing the church, I will be with you. Go and do my work, I will be with you. And then beautifully we studied at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and God's presence fell upon them. And then we understand today that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have God's presence with you always. That's different 
than the Old Testament. You realize that? Some of you have studied that through. When you look at God's presence in the Old Testament, it was common that he would, it was common that he would come upon somebody for a time. And it was also a practice that he would leave, that presence would leave. And even an evil spirit sometimes would come. We see this with King Saul. God's presence upon him, an evil spirit's presence upon him. God works differently today. When God comes and God saves us, there is no power, there is nothing that can take us out of his hand. And so first of all, we see God's power. Second, we see God's preservation. God tells Paul, no one will attack you or harm you there in verse number 10. This is God's incredible preservation. Now, this was not true just a little while earlier, right? No one is going to harm you. That's what God tells Paul here. That's what Paul needed to hear here. There's not going to be any physical assault. God had not said that just a little bit ago in previous months. And also, this promise would not be true down the road. This was for a particular window of time, but it was true. And Paul held on to this. This kind of reminds me when I think of this, this power and also this preservation, reminds me of the two witnesses that we're going to, I think, see in the end times. And how these two witnesses in Revelation, how they would have the entire world trying to destroy them. And they would just open their mouths and breathe out what? Fire. They could breathe out fire and they could not be touched by their enemies. Listen to this wonderful, wonderful verse that we have in Isaiah 54, 17. What he said to Isaiah, where God told Isaiah, his man, listen, and you can get a mental picture from this too, no weapon that is fashioned against thee shall succeed. What kind of confidence would that bring to Isaiah? And let me just say, with this incredible promise of God's preservation, if you are a servant of the Lord, nothing can touch you outside of God's power and his design. Let me say that again. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can harm you outside of God's design and power. And some people will be listening with a critical ear and they will say, aha, you gave a little caveat there. Nothing can hurt you outside of God's design. And so some people will say, well, let's just throw that promise aside because we don't know what his design is. Can I tell you what his design is? God's design is for his glory and God's design is for the good of his children. So you do not have to worry if this promise is for a season or for a longer season or for your entire life. But you can count on the fact that God will be with you and will preserve you. You cannot be harmed as you work for the Lord unless God allows it. And the God who is in control of all things, so what does that mean? Does that mean your finances? Does that mean your family situation? The God that is in control of all things, everything in this world, he fashioned man out of the dust of the ground and there is nothing that escapes his notice and that he does not allow. The God that is in control of all things in this universe, so if you want to, boy, if you want to build some confidence in you, understand this, he has unlimited resources. He's not bound by time, he's not bound by gravity, he's not bound by anything that you and I are bound by. He has unlimited resources and ability to make happen what he promised. 
And so what does God use in this case? Well, in verses 13 through 17, God uses Roman law to fulfill and keep this promise. Now, when I say Paul was promised that he would not be, he would not be persecuted for a time, some might say, hang on a second, he gets arrested. Right in the next verse, right after this promise, he gets arrested. Look at verse number 11 with me. It says, And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on a second. I thought he was given this promise that no one was going to harm him or attack him. What's going on? with him getting arrested here. Well, in verses 13 through 17, we find that the enemies of Paul, they oppose him and they work to put him out of business. I want to go ahead and tell you this is one of God's resources that he has. And let's read what he did at this time, starting in verse number 13. So he's brought before the proconsul saying, so this is what his accusers said, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, and there's a whole great lesson right here, isn't there? When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it, to, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. And Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So what's going on here? This leader, this, this man who was running this, who was a little bit new, and I think that's why after a time they brought charges against Paul. They were hoping this new guy might listen to them, but this actually backfires. And if you can't see God's hand sprinkled all throughout this, then you're missing it. Let me read you some commentary that John Stott gives on this. Here's what he says. He says, Gallio's refusal to take seriously the Jewish case against Paul was immensely important for the future of the gospel. In effect, he passed a favorable verdict on the Christian faith and thus established a significant precedent. Jesus would keep his promise to protect him, that's Paul. The chief means of his protection would be Roman law. God gives Paul the promise of his power. God gives Paul the promise of his preservation. And then finally and last, he gives him another promise when he says, I have many in this city who are my people. This is God's promise of a fruitful life. If you missed last week's message, we focused on this fruit, so we're not going to go over that all again. But I did say we would touch on one more topic because we have in verse number 10 of Acts 18 and also uh, verse number 6 of Acts 18 something that seems to uh, conflict. God said, I have many here to be saved, and yet Paul said to those ones in the synagogue, your blood is on your own hands. And so let me just say this with this sometimes sensitive topic. If you come to Jesus Christ, you are coming to him because he chose you before the foundations of the world. We cannot separate this from Bible teaching. And if someone rejects Jesus Christ, 
It is their own responsibility. Okay, are you, are you thinking about these two things? Are, are you confused yet? If you come to Jesus Christ, you're coming to him because he chose you before the foundation of the world. If you reject Jesus Christ, it is your own responsibility. And you say, those two things don't go together. And I'd say, that's right. They don't go together. It is a paradox. One uh, theologian has said there is actually a paradox that we cannot possibly understand in every major doctrine of God's word. And so you have to allow for the paradox of sovereignty and responsibility. But here's the great news with that, okay? And this is not dumbing it down. This is the great news that comes with this. You don't have to be rattled by this. You don't have to say, well, it doesn't make sense. And you don't have to let it throw you off in your walk with Jesus Christ. Just because we cannot justify sovereignty with responsibility, we don't have to walk away from our faith or stop studying or stop wanting to be effective. We just let those two exist. Let me just go ahead and run here just for a minute with this. This is where the devil gets us off track. The devil loves, like I say, he's not going to come to you with some kind, of a major, some kind of a major thing that's clearly wrong in sin to throw you off track. He wants to take issues like this. And it's not that we ignore them. I will oftentimes that, say that we, around here, we try to major on the majors and we try to minor on the minors. When we minor on the minors, it doesn't mean that we just push them aside and never think about them. You can have an opinion about it. You can study God's word about it. You can read books about it. You can even have a favorite minor, if you will. Having said that, where the danger comes in and where many believers fall into, I think, the trap of the devil is when they allow these minor issues to trump a major issue. The major things that God wants us to always be focusing on, to not allow those to get knocked down. And oftentimes, it's hot-button issues. I think we've seen a couple here, even in Acts 18. Those things that are not main, and those things that are not plain, necessarily. They're debatable in the Scriptures. We need to ask ourselves the question, does this, if it's a minor, or if it's something that we're talking about that might be debatable, does this help us or hinder us in some way from, and here we go again, joining together for worship? Does this help us or hinder us in some way from growing deeper in our understanding of God's word? Does this help us or does this hinder us with committing ourselves to brothers and sisters in a local church? Does this help us or does this hinder us with spreading the gospel? Worship, instruction, fellowship, and expression. And I might need to grow a little bit in this area. Maybe I need to mature because I get a little bit, I think I get a little bit biased when I talk about this. If I'm talking to someone and we're talking about one of the minors or a disagreement and I know that individual doesn't have much appreciation for the majors or one of the majors, let me just say, you lose a whole lot of credibility. I just heard in the past couple of weeks someone talking about the importance of the church and the importance of the gospel and telling people about Jesus and here's the, and you ought to forgive me, you'll forgive me, right? I'm sure you will, most of you. I thought to myself, as this individual was spouting this off, I just, I could not help but think, how is their effectiveness with that? Because they knew the jargon. 
And most likely you and I know the jargon as well, right? So we know what to say. And then they started going off on something else and I couldn't help but say, how important is that to them? And I am completely biased on the area of the local church. If you don't know this by now, you've not been around very long. God's plan is the church. The church is not going away. Jesus Christ is going to come back and we are going to have an effective, wonderful church until Jesus comes, and I'm thankful for that. And so when someone comes to me and talks about something and they have zero use for a church joining together, or in their Christian ministry, they're not pointing people to be part of a fellowship, and like I say, maybe I need to grow in this area, but you lose a whole lot of credibility with me anyway when you are not embracing God's plan. I think the devil loves to, and there's books about these minors. And don't ignore them. There's a ton of these. I would even dare to say there are hundreds of these kinds of things. But we need to not allow them to knock us off of the majors. I was listening to some Bible teaching this past week, an incredible speaker who's had an incredible impact. And as he was speaking, he came and he he said something He said something that was out of my comfort zone. I'm not going to tell you what it was. But he said something that maybe years ago I would have thrown out everything and say, you know, anathema. Nothing. I wash my hands of that anymore. Can I suggest to you, and this is a dangerous thing to say, can I suggest to you that sometimes it is not an unhealthy thing to have some people that disagree with us, disagree with us on some of these minors? It will stretch you. I'm not saying to surround yourself with all kinds of people who have things that are anti-Bible. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying nothing will drive you to know what you believe in the Scriptures more than to know there's someone else who loves Jesus Christ that disagrees with you on something. It will stretch you to know what you believe. It might even stretch you to change what you believe about that. And that's why it's a minor. It's flexible. And there are some things that are not minors. They are majors. Here's the point. We don't have to be afraid of these topics, and I love that. Now, I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many of you, answering just quietly in your head, have had some kind of a topic, and maybe you're interacting with somebody at work or somebody at church, or you're interacting with um, maybe a minister, and you have a difference of opinion, and you're afraid to go down that road. Can I tell you, you don't have to be afraid of that. I've been encouraging our family ministries director, Greg, to, uh, he and I together to work on a book. We give away a book in our visitor bags. And I thought, man, this would be great if we could put together our own book. And Greg is very well suited for this. And I would just take some of my sermons and put them on paper is what I would do and give out a book. And if, and as we've talked about this, I thought about the title for the book. And the title is No More Borrowed Convictions. No more borrowed convictions. You need to have these convictions of your own. Well, can I just go ahead and be completely transparent? Every one of us, I think it's fair to say, every one of us to some extent has some borrowed convictions. There are just so many hundreds of thousands of topics out there that sometimes you're going to say, oh, so-and-so believes this? Yeah, that, that sounds good to me. And that's where I'm at. I'm sorry if you're losing any respect for the guy teaching today, but I'm there in a lot of places. Haven't quite had time to go through all of that yet, and I respect these guys and know. And so sometimes we have some borrowed convictions in some areas, and that's okay. What's all the result of this encouragement? We've got to wrap this up. 
What's the results of this encouragement? Well, Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months. Now, if you're rushing past that, you might not think that's a very long time, a year and a half. This is extremely different from the experience of the Apostle Paul on his journeys. In fact, if you just read through the next 15 or so verses, you're gonna see him going here and here and here and here. And somebody says, won't you please stay with us? And he says, sorry guys, gotta go. And he doesn't stay anywhere very long. And yet here in Corinth, he stays for 18 months. And let me go ahead and give us some things that we can do as we wrap this up. I think that the Apostle Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months and I think that he had a bit of a different role. I wish I could talk longer about the names of God. And I can't, I'll just ask this question. Have you learned some of the names of God because you've experienced those qualities of God? Whether it be merciful or comforter or patient or patient or patient. I'm thankful that God is a God of patience. Maybe you've experienced that one yourself. What can you do with this? Well, first of all, do not allow the lesser issues to knock the major issues out of their rightful place. And I've already talked about this quite a bit. Don't allow those lesser issues to knock the major issues out of place. It doesn't mean we ignore them. It just means you don't have to be afraid of them and know what the majors are. Know what is non-negotiable. And then number two, as we go, when you are discouraged, you can change your pace but just don't stop moving forward. Discouragement's going to come, all right? Here's Paul. He is a hero of the faith if there, was, if there ever was one, right? And he is discouraged at this point, and I think God puts him in this place and slows him down. His role changed a little bit. And by the way, God was in control of all of that. Nobody says, my goodness, imagine if the Apostle Paul wouldn't have had to stay in Corinth for a year and a half, what he could have accomplished, If you know that God's in control and you're trusting that, you're saying, look what God did here. And look how beautiful that was. And then you have to go and apply it right to your own life. You might change your pace. You might change your role. But just don't stop moving forward. Because God's power is perfected in our weaknesses. God never changes. He is immutable. He is the same today as the day when you got saved, as the day when Jesus Christ came to this world, He'll be the same forever. He never changes, but your circumstance does. Your level of pain does. And he knows that. Years ago, Margaret Thatcher was visiting a nursing home. And it was a home where a lot of folks had memory issues. They were having a hard time and she was trying to encourage them. And so Margaret Thatcher was walking through and and she was saying hi to people and greeting them. And there was one person just kind of sitting there looking down. And so Margaret Thatcher walked over and said hi and tried to shake her hand. And she just kind of looked down and talked with her for a little bit. And the woman didn't respond at all. And so Margaret Thatcher said this to this woman. She said, do you know who I am? To which the older woman replied, no, I don't. But if you'll go to that nurse over there, she helps us with things just like that. And I think God, every once in a while, says to us through his word, and even in the quiet of the night, do you know who I am? Because God said to Moses, do not be afraid, for I am with you. God said to Joshua, do not be afraid, for I am with you. God said to Abraham, you don't have to be afraid because I'm with you. God said to Isaiah, 
Fear thou not, for I am with you. And God said, I am with you to Larry and to Sean. God said, I am with you to Elaine and to Richard. God said, I am with you to Susan. I don't have time to go through all of our names, but do you believe that he's with you? Do you believe that he has your name in his thoughts? And does this give you confidence? Whether you're on a mountaintop or you're in a valley, God never changes. And though our situation does, we praise God that he is the one that never changes. God does not apologize for saying never. He said to you, insert your name here, I will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not changing. Thank you that we live in a world where there is time. We live in a world where there are seasons. We live in a world where we see maybe our fruitfulness and our area of influence expanding. Maybe it seems like it's shrinking. Maybe our resources seem more at times or seem less at times. And all of these things never throw you off. And it's our responsibility to be reminded of your promises and thank you that you promised Paul these beautiful things of your power and of your preservation and I thank you that we have these as well I thank you for your presence I thank you for being such a beautiful wonderful loving savior with heads bowed and eyes closed no one looking around I'm gonna ask Anna just to play through a little bit on the piano I want to give you a chance to pray I have no idea what God is doing in your heart might be something from God's word today might be something else you carried in here you talk to God at this time want to invite you at this time if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ you've never given him your life want to invite you to make today the day of your salvation ask him to save you and forgive you because of Christ paying for your sins on the cross you can do that just at this time if you like